I have a woman with me today who you've probably seen on TV more than me. She uh, she does such an outstanding job of communicating uh, law enforcement issues and talking about uh, what happened to her throughout her police career. And her story is so compelling and she is so well-spoken that I knew you just had to meet her. Megan McCarthy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so lucky to be here. So yeah, amen. We're so happy to have you here. So before we uh, start talking about the domestic dispute that you went to in 2019, I want people to get a sense of who you are. So I'm going to ask you the question that you've probably been asked a thousand times. Why did you become a cop? You know, I wish I had that squeaky clean answer that I grew up wanting to be a cop, but that's not true. I actually grew up wanting to be a nurse and I was in the middle of getting all of my classes done for nursing school. And my friend who worked for the sheriff's department said, why don't you come on a ride along? It's actually kind of fun. So I went and I was hooked. And ever since then, I knew that law enforcement and community policing and the bond you create with people, that is what I wanted to do to help people. So I think the next week I applied for the Academy and two, three months later, I began my journey. So let's talk about uh, that incident in 2019 where um, you got dispatched to a mother-son domestic, kind of a, a typical call, right? That all of us go on as patrol officers. Yours turned out much differently. Um, set the scene for us there. It came across the radio at about 8.30 in the morning, maybe just shy of 8.30, just gotten out of briefing. I was getting my morning coffee and I happened to be in that area where the call came out. It wasn't my beat, my area of the day, but I knew I was right down the street. So I responded. And while I'm en route to the call, the call was upgraded from a priority two to a priority one due to the mom being on the phone with 911, but she stopped responding. She stopped answering questions. And during her interaction with dispatch, she's telling them, oh my God, oh my God, get him out of here. You can hear a male in the background. You can't make out what he's saying, but you can tell there's something going on. And then it goes quiet, but she's still on the phone. So I knew I needed to get there immediately. I didn't know if there was an assault in progress, if something was happening. And our sheriff's department, we run one man units, pretty much one deputy responding to one call, unless of course it's, you know, a crazy domestic or an active shooter, something where obviously, but, you know, domestics or civil disturbances are generally handled by one deputy. So I respond and I'm beginning to walk up to the front door to make contact and the front door opens and out comes a suspect. He walks directly towards me, beelines it. He sees me. He's mad. I can tell he's not having a good day. And right behind him is this mom holding a knife in one hand and holding a phone on the phone with dispatch in the other hand. So I start my contact. Hey, what's going on? Relax. Talk to me. What's going on? And he's not having it. He doesn't want to comply. He doesn't want to answer any questions. And part of our detention, as you know, is you have to render the scene safe. So part of that is with my reasonable suspicion, I conduct a pat down search and that just set him off. He did not want me to touch him. He did not want to put his hands behind his back. And that's basically when our fight began. Now, so what is he, the mom doing at this point? Because uh, you've got what you believe to be your victim, but she's also holding a knife. And of course, we all know that the the victim, the caller, very often in domestic, 
can turn into a real problem for the the responding officer, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, domestics are historically one of the most dangerous calls you can respond to other than traffic stops. And when I am hearing the information that she's giving to dispatch and I see what's going on, my reaction is she's armed herself against him. So I need to figure out what's going on, separate the two, make sure he doesn't have a weapon. Does, is she armed because he has one? You know, these are all questions that we have to take into account to protect ourselves and the people involved. So I didn't even get a chance to talk to her. She's standing kind of off to the right, but behind us, but not in my direct sight. So I can still hear her talking to dispatch. She's now she had three weighed the grandma from down the hill. So there's like a three-way conversation and I can hear it going on. But again, my attention is towards the suspect. So I found out later that she actually tried to intervene, but she wasn't able to. Wow. So I talk about how I'm going to show folks the uh, video of your shooting uh, in a second. But um, again, set the scene for us how this went so bad so quickly. I want to say it was 13 or 14 seconds into my contact with him. And I'm, you know, trying to pat down his pockets. I'm telling him, relax, relax. What's going on? I'm just trying to have a conversation. And he tells me I'm going to headbutt the fuck out of you. Excuse my language, but you know, it's not always pretty. And so of course that kind of raises the hair on the back of my neck. Like, well, I don't want to be headbutted. So I go to kind of step offline from him. And he tells me if we fight, I'm going to kill you. So now I'm like, well, this is a big problem. I thought I was here to just solve some civil thing. You know, you go get some air, you go over here. And now we have a legitimate crime that you just occurred against me. So he spins around, grabs my left wrist and he is pulling on it. And I'm telling him, let go, let go, get off, you know, all the verbal commands. And so I start going through my, you know, use of force continuum. The verbal commands aren't working. I go to try and do a rear wrist lock, the figure four takedown, all the things. He's not complying. And so I go to take my baton out and I, you know, extend it and he grabs it from me and tosses it in the gravel next to us. So by the way, he was holding my left wrist and pulling me offline. I couldn't reach my taser on the other side of my belt. So we had fought for maybe a minute and a half before that video kicks on and you know, I start, I'm continuing to tell him, get on the ground, get on the ground, stop fighting. And we get to a point where he grabs my bun on the back of my head and pulls me down and is trying to knee me in the face. And so now we're kind of in like a standstill where I'm pushing him to get off me and he's holding me down. So then I'm able to pull up and that's when we maneuvered into the street where you can see on the video and he starts punching me in the face over and over again. And I start to lose consciousness. I'm losing this fight. There's no doubt about it. So I tell him, I'm going to shoot you. Now, I was hoping that that would be enough of a, okay, I'm just going to stop. Because if you tell the average person, I'm going to shoot you, they would stop their actions and maybe take a breath and we can talk about it. But that escalated. So we end up falling onto the ground and he mounts on top of me and I fire around at his head and I miss. And then he traps my hand in the ground like this. And now we're fighting over my gun. And what ended up happening is he placed his finger in the trigger guard and we discharged around in the, into the ground. And then he's able to overpower me and take my gun. And so I now turn onto my hands and knees and I'm looking up at him and he's pointing the gun at my forehead and I hear the trigger click. And I had so much pain to my face from, he had actually broken my 
orbital bone right there. That the only logical thing I thought was I had just been shot, but my heart's pumping, my legs are moving, we got to get out, you know, fight or flight. So I turn and I start running for cover and I hear another gunshot go off and I know he's shooting at me as I'm running away. So I find some cover between a couple of bushes and like a little cubby by the fence. And by the grace of God, the dispatcher sent the units just in time because I wasn't responding to the radio. So right as he's basically hunting me down, three of my partners come down the cul-de-sac. They take his attention. He fires around at them and they end up getting into an officer involved shooting. And then he's taken to the hospital for his injuries. Megan, let's show folks just a few seconds of, uh, of your fight, the fight for your life with this man. A deputy in a violent struggle with a man in Victorville, she shot him. Then the suspect grabbed her gun and fired at her. So Megan, just watching that video and then hearing you describe it, this is every cop's nightmare. This is, I mean, you are truly in a fight for your life. And, and again, you thought this is it. I've already been shot, right? When somebody gets control of your firearm and he did pull the trigger uh, on your pistol, right? Why didn't it go off? By the grace of God, it malfunctioned when the round was discharged into the ground. So because we, his hand was so close to the slide, the round wasn't able to eject. So it stove piped. And he didn't know that. So when he goes to grab my gun, he doesn't clear the malfunction. He just pulls the trigger and it doesn't cycle. So, you know, I, it gives me chills to think that whether we're training or whether we're on the range, whatever we're doing, you never want a malfunction because you want your equipment to work properly. And the only reason why I survived that day was because of a malfunction. So here we have a guy, it's on video. You have visible injuries. Um, and we would assume that the end of this story is he goes to prison for 20 or 30 years and you go back to work and everyone lives happily ever after. That's not that's not the story, is it? Talk about what happens in the immediate aftermath of him getting arrested and charged and and uh, and then also you, you know, your physical and emotional injuries from that day. So he ended up being charged with around 12 felonies and enhancements. His exposure was 60 to life. And I felt comfortable that I was going to get justice and I was going to have closure. And I felt like, you know, the justice system would have my back now as a victim of a crime. So I was healing from, I went to orthopedic surgeons. I had to have, you know, physical therapy. I had to have certain physical things done to rehab, but the mental health was what really ended up being the final straw. I was medically retired for PTSD March of 2022. I saw, I don't know, 10 to 15 different doctors and psychiatrists. And I did the EMDR and the group therapy and the meds and everything. And I just was not fit for duty. And it's still a hard pill to swallow because that wasn't the path I wanted. I was forced down this path, but in hindsight, I am thankful that I get to at least share my story. And I'm I hate to say it, but I'm one of the lucky ones that survived. And he ended up going to trial May of this year and was acquitted. So that's just so extraordinary that this man was acquitted. We're going to talk about that. But I want to I want you to talk for a couple minutes about while you're rehabbing both physically and emotionally, 
you're doing it during one of the most difficult times for the American law enforcement officer. You're doing this uh, post George Floyd, you know, post June of 2020. So here you are, somebody who damn near sacrificed your life for your community. And as you're trying to get better so that you can go back and serve your community, um, you're spending, I'm guessing, a lot of time watching riots and hearing hateful rhetoric about how cops are bad and cops are violent. Talk about that period of time. It honestly makes me so sick to think about that period of time in my life. My husband works for the sheriff's department and he's on the SWAT team. And I can't even tell you how many riots he was sent out to. And it's actually kind of ironic. The one year anniversary of my shooting, he gets dispatched to an active shooter. And, you know, now we're both dealing with critical incidents on the same exact day of my shooting. And now we're watching our entire institution of law enforcement under attack. So it went from being personal to just me to this is personal against my husband and my brothers and sisters and everything that we had sworn our oath just crumbled in front of our eyes and there's nothing we can do about it. And it's heartbreaking trying to get myself back to be able to, you know, listen to the radio again or look at my uniform and not have panic attacks. But then I also feel such guilt about my partners being out there fighting this horrible rhetoric and I can't do anything because I'm helpless you know, I'm stuck at home, a hermit, because I'm afraid of the world. And I think it has just fueled the mental health crisis in first responders stemming from that incident. I think you're absolutely right. And in fact, we'll talk more about that because part of part of healing from an incident like yours is the knowledge that someone, hopefully my community, hopefully the crime victim appreciates my sacrifice, right? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Victorville is ranked number nine in the top 10 most dangerous cities in California. So our community here isn't necessarily law enforcement loving. However, the community that I live in is very welcoming and they love their cops. But you could tell that the people that used to be proud to see you or they would be happy to, you know, stop and ask if you want a bottle of water on the side of the road during a traffic accident. That's long gone. You know, my husband would tell me horror stories about people screaming and shouting at them as they're on hostage rescues and, you know, just crazy things where it makes you wonder, like, why am I doing this then? And, you know, it brings it back to, I hate to make it about me, but, you know, I almost died that day. And then here we are not even a year later and the entire law enforcement community is probably feeling the same way that I did. And it's devastating. Absolutely. So this guy that that attacked you and tried to kill you, um, is this his first brush with the law? It was his first arrest. It was his first time in jail. It was his first encounter with law enforcement. So your case goes to trial. Now, you're not only the police officer um, who came to this domestic, but you're the crime victim. And you're the victim of a very violent crime and he's charged with multiple felonies and you go uh not by your choice uh by his choice to a jury trial right yeah and i had actually begged for years not to go on the stand i we all know about marcy's law we've handed out the card we've given the resources but it's different when you're actually sitting on that side of the fence 
And I had told the prosecutor, like, I don't know if my mental health can do this. I am being honest. I don't think I can survive rehashing all of this and reliving it. And then as you know, it had been about three years, almost four years since my incident, I had built up enough resiliency to say like, this isn't about me anymore. This is about every other cop that has been murdered. So I have to go up there and testify so that he can't do this again. So I spent three days being cross-examined. I was called disgusting names by the defense attorney. I was called a racist. I was called you know, for so many words that I did this just for attention and the sheriff's department staged this whole thing. It was actually an illusion and it minimized every single day that I felt like I was losing my battle to mental health. It just completely took it away as if I wanted this to happen. That's just extraordinary. You know, we talk so much, well, you talk about Marcy's on, we, we talk so much, we used to talk so much about crime victims and how they should be treated. And because very often, exactly what you're describing is how crime victims are re-victimized when it comes to the way that our justice system um, is put forth these days. And, you know, we, we all know, everybody knows that there's 70 plus radical George Soros and cell prosecutors around this country. And in so many places, around this nation. We have a, a justice system where there are defense attorneys who are advocating for the criminal. Now we have district attorneys very often that are advocating for the criminal or just a system in general that seems to me all in for the criminal and not so much for the crime victim, especially when the crime victim is a cop. Do you feel because you were a police officer you were treated even worse than most crime victims are treated? 100% yes. And, you know, we pulled the jurors afterwards and we spoke to quite a few. And they even admitted that there was many jurors that had implicit bias towards law enforcement. And no matter what I said, no matter what evidence showed that he was guilty of a crime, they were going to find him not guilty because I was a cop and they didn't like cops. They had bad encounters with cops. So they were bringing in prior prejudice and instead of hearing me as a victim and a mom and a human being that bleeds the same blood, they just said, oh, well, because you had a badge and uniform on, you're not worthy of being a victim. And it set a huge precedent of just destruction, not just in our county, in our community, but across the country. I mean, I've received messages from people that heard my story and dropped out of the academy because they said they don't want to do that. So, you know, we're already having a huge attrition problem, we're already having a huge problem of people becoming cops. And then now we have assembly bills that are legitly targeting cops to not be fair. So what do we do? Yeah, you're absolutely right, including uh, Assembly Bill 3070, which gives juries in California the right jurors to have implicit bias towards law enforcement. And that's the only profession they're allowed to have implicit bias for. And so no matter how those juries felt about cops, it was fine for them to sit on the jury and hear about what happened to you. And then what did they do? Acquit your attacker, essentially an attempted murderer, correct? Absolutely. And, you know, there was other things that we found out that the judge did not allow certain evidence to be heard. That was very damning. You know, he waived his rights. He wanted to speak. And those interviews where he blatantly admits to this crime with intent, she didn't allow the jurors to hear it because it 
was too close to surgery time and she allowed different opinions aside from experts to be influenced. So, you know, I felt like I was up against a huge mountain the entire time. I never felt like I was protected. I never felt like safe. I never felt heard. And I certainly never felt like I worked so hard for this justice system. Where is the justice system working for me? Megan, how do you get beyond this now that, because again, we know what we can control. We know what we don't, you know, you can't control the court system. Um, How do you get beyond it? Make as much noise as I possibly can. I will, I will die on this hill because I am so impassioned about not just mental health, but the corruptness that has influenced the people that are sitting on juries. I mean, if you don't take jury duty seriously in these instances, and then you let people out of jail and then they break into your house and God forbid you become a victim of a crime. Well, are we perpetuating that cycle or are we trying to stop it? And so now I'm speaking to anybody that is willing to listen. I am banging the drum with a district attorney and with assemblymen and senators and anybody that will give me the time of day to get 3070 reformed and to get that pendulum swinging back because, you know, I have kids that are going to be raised in this, hopefully not this state for long, but in this nation. And what type of foundation are we giving them when we see what's happening? I tell you, Megan, you are so incredibly brave. I'm just so proud of you. You're so well-spoken. And I think we're going to hear a lot more from you. Megan McCarthy, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I look forward to hearing more from you in the future. And if you'd like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.